You know, I like that uh, tradition of let's stand up and sing because we sound so much better. Um, <clears throat> my laptop's acting up here. So uh, before we start, how about we continue that tradition and we'll stand up, how about we stand up in prayer. Bruce started me up on this and I think we pray better when we stand up. So let's just stand up in prayer. Father, we thank you at this time that we can come together to worship you through song and through the study of your scripture. Father, uh, we pray that your word would have free reign in all of our hearts. Um, We pray that we would bring glory to you through the application in our own lives. And we ask for your blessing in our time. Amen. You may be seated. So open your Bibles, just in case you weren't able to see that. Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. How many uh, people know what a rhetorical question is? It's kind of a trick question. You're not sure. Should I be raising my hand or like, what am I doing here? Um, It's a hard one to answer. So I figured chapter 3 is a tough subject. So I'll give you a bunch of questions right off the top. Put it in the back of your mind, okay? So I don't expect to answer these out loud. Uh, if you take notes, write them down. One is, how many of us would love to see a bona fide miracle and see the uh, power of God displayed in a real way? Two, hopefully there's no pyromaniacs here, but how many of us would love to see the church catch fire. Lastly, how many of us are willing to do whatever it takes to bring about a personal revival? So keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through this. So first and second Thessalonians, it's meant to be an encouragement to those that are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. It's also, though, a call to action to uh, correct improper teaching and address sins that have a detrimental effect on the church. One of the key instruments that Paul uses when he's correcting them is he uses prophecy. Prophecy is capable of Uh, encouraging people, it's uh, able to correct improper teaching, it brings about concern in those that aren't living for Jesus Christ. And while we read this letter, it's easy to also forget that these believers, they were going and they were in the middle of some turmoil. They were going through a firestorm. The Bible in Acts 17, this is the time when Paul goes to visit the church at Thessalonica when he was with them, it says that the Jews which believed not moved with envy took on to them certain lewd fellows of the bastard sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren onto the rulers of the city crying, These are they that have turned the world upside down. And they are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. 
saying that there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night onto Berea. So the commotion that is happening here when Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica, it it didn't just end as soon as they left to go for Berea. The aggressors were still harassing the local new converts. So with that in mind, let's read 2 Thessalonians, our main text here, chapter 3. Paul is speaking here. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. So in spite of all this turmoil that's going on in Thessalonica, Paul knew that God was in complete control. This can be somewhat difficult to comprehend, especially when you're going through your own struggles. You know, when times are sweet, God's in control. When times are hard, God is in control. When uh, everything seems to be working against you, the world is against you, God is actually still in control. It's like when you're cooking. I love it when Sarah makes bread. You take flour by itself, it tastes horrible. You take yeast, I don't eat yeast. But you mix it with some other ingredients and then you put it in the fire for about an hour. When it comes out, it's a delicious, warm bread. The Bible says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And as difficult as it was to walk through this uproar in Thessalonica, it actually drew a lot more attention to the cause of Christ. See, more people were hearing the gospel because of what was going on. Otherwise, it would have been kind of a thing that just happened in the synagogue and that was it. So what the adversary actually meant for evil, God meant it for good. Paul points out in verse 1 that it was the word of God that was actually working in the new believers because they were willing to listen. He points out in verse 2 that God delivered them from unreasonable men. Men that were trying to stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men that chose not to believe. Men that would even make false accusations against these people in order to get them imprisoned. They were so stubborn that they wouldn't even allow the confirming voice and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to penetrate their hard hearts. You know, but by God's grace and mercy, Paul and Silas were delivered and they were allowed to go on to Berea. He points out in verse 3 that the Lord is the one that was going to establish them in their faith. And he was the one that was going to protect them from all the evil that was going on. Evil on the part of these unreasonable men, but also evil on the part from Satan himself. I mean, think of it, he's none too pleased. These men are now very much on fire for God and they're making a huge impact in their surrounding. 
Satan would love to destroy him, but God is not going to allow this. Then in verse Paul 4 says, I know that you're going to do what we command. See, he's not arrogantly imposing a rule upon them. He's not trying to beat them down. He's actually guiding them with a lot of love. Because he knows that ultimately they're going to obey the word of God. Because you know, when, the Bible, when someone is born anew of the Spirit and they are in the Spirit, they want to do everything they can to please and to follow the Lord. That's just their natural heart's desire. And revival now had come to Thessalonica, and which is strange, it wasn't at the local synagogue. It was in the homes of these mostly Gentile people. You know, it's difficult for us to comprehend it because we're all Gentiles, but try to picture it from that point of view. The very people that are looking forward to the Messiah, Paul comes to them and describes Jesus. They reject him. Their own fellow Jew comes to them with the news of the Messiah that they've been long waiting for, and they just say, no, it's not, it's not him. Essentially, they reject the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. They didn't agree that he actually fulfilled the prophecies. Yet some of the pagans, they saw that foolishness of their own ways when they were hearing this was just foolishness. And then they actually embraced the gospel wholeheartedly. And their lives were immediately and forever changed. Which brings up a a thought. How can you have two groups of people look at the same information and come to two completely different conclusions? Because the majority in this case, they were trying to quash this movement from God, which is kind of a lesson. Don't automatically assume the majority is in the right. The minority, on the other hand, minority, I should have said that more clear, um, they were just motivated by a sincere desire for truth. And they found it in God's word. And subsequently, they devoured it because they loved it. They knew that that's where it was found. And they believed every word of it. I mean, the prophecies of Jesus had been fulfilled, so now they were looking forward to his return. Revival was taking place with them because they had a thirst for righteousness now. You know, there's something about prophecy that excites people. I mean, you could say, okay, we're going to be doing a Bible study on prophecy, and people that would never show up to Bible studies, all of a sudden, they're there. Also, the Bible teaches that there's a blessing in actually studying biblical prophecy. I'm not talking Nostradamus stuff. I'm talking biblical prophecy. So to get a good context of First and Second Thessalonians, we read Acts 17, but it's good to study Matthew 24, Matthew 25, so on, to get a good idea. I know some people, they tend to shy away from uh, prophecy because you know, they think, oh, it's not meant to be understood, which is not correct. Some associate it with uh, you know, those gloom and doom date setters, so it scares them off, so they avoid prophecy altogether. Yet, false teaching and date setters, they were around even before Paul's time. Paul actually used 
biblical prophecy to correct the bad teachings that were going on out there. He wanted to comfort their minds. He wanted to comfort their hearts. And he did that, and they were looking forward to that day when Jesus was going to return. You know what's crazy is as I was looking at this, I just did a quick search, and there was this list I found. There was over 160 end-of-day kind of prophecies on this list. There's probably like a lot more, but I was going to waste my time looking for that. You guys probably are aware that the Jehovah's Witnesses have several different prophecies that have come and gone. Nothing has happened. Think about in our own lifetime as well, our contemporaries. Most of you probably remember the whole Y2K thing. I remember Sarah and I were in downtown Toronto. That's where we were living. Um, you know, some were concerned that the nuclear reactors might blow up. Some people were like, is my toaster going to work after midnight? They weren't sure. People were emptying the, the, the shelves in the grocery stores, filling up all their vehicles, extra jerry cans, buying generators in case the whole uh, electricity grid from North America would go down. People were in a real panic. Meanwhile, on New Year's Eve, Sarah and I are like in our apartment on the 18th floor in our balcony just looking down, seeing if anybody's going to go crazy at midnight and just ransack stores to steal a bunch of stuff. Nothing happened. But there was a well-known televangelist at this time. He said that he foresaw God pouring down his judgment on January 1st, 2000. He didn't specify which time zone, but he still said it was going to happen on that day. Another popular one, he said that the world was going to be destroyed on April 29th, 2007. Again, it's come and gone. We're still here. I won't even go into all that blood moon stuff from 2014. But it leads me to wonder that, why do these people not believe the Bible? I'm talking about the date setters. They don't believe the Bible, apparently. Because what's the point of reading this book if you don't think God is 100% accurate? Because obviously they would have read Matthew 24, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven but my father only. So I was thinking about this. So as they come to this, this verse here, they have one of two choices. It's like, okay, I can either agree with God and he knows everything so there's no date to be set by me, or, you know what, I can try to outwit him and try to pinpoint a date. Which begs the question, would they actually be doing this if they were living during the time of Moses? Because, you know, in Deuteronomy it says, But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. You know, thankfully we live in a new dispensation and as followers of Jesus Christ we don't make it a habit of going around stoning people to death, you know. And if, you know, for some reason you've been thinking about taking it up as a hobby at night, please don't, okay? <laughs> Verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition that he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them 
that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So when Paul was uh, with them, he addressed certain things that they needed to correct. And in his first letter, he, he addresses those things again. He gave them the benefit of the doubt. He wasn't on a witch hunt. He didn't jump to conclusions. So he clearly stated in his first letter what he expected from them. But apparently after the first letter uh, was received, those people, they, they just chose not to change what they were doing. And in the meantime, the church had been continuing to walk in their faith and all the while doing this, they were still blessing all these other people with that, including those brothers that were in transgression. And evidently, this wasn't a singular case. Like when, you know, when somebody just messes up. When somebody just messes up, you just need to encourage that person in their walk. This was an ongoing problem with the same sinful attitude. This wasn't like, you know, when somebody's walking along and they trip and they fall into a mud puddle. This is somebody that's going out of their way to look for the muck and mire that they love so much and dive headlong into it and then they're just swimming along enjoying the swim. Let's look at verse 7. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Notice that even before he wrote the first letter, he encouraged them while he was with them. He was being a good example. That's how we're supposed to be. He was evangelizing, he was teaching, he was doing all these things, all the while he was actually working to feed himself and take care of himself. He didn't even want people to consider that he was doing it for the freebies or that he was taking advantage of people. Paul was very careful to be sure of everything that he did that it was not going to take any, way, any glory away from God. Whether it was by speech or by action, he was uh, very mindful of the fact that some things could be misconstrued which could obviously tarnish the work that God had set out before him. And so it was a problem for them to not choose to work on their part. It had become continual, it had become a deliberate rejection of the apostles' teaching now. And I want us to notice also that he doesn't say those that can't work, he says those that would not work. Okay? He's not addressing someone that for some reason they're not able to work. He's talking about able-bodied people that are actually choosing not to work. You have people that get injured and they feel all guilty because they, you know, they can't work. And He's not talking about, if you can't work, that's different. This is people that were deliberate choosing, deliberately choosing not to work. I don't know, maybe their excuse was like, well, Jesus is going to come, so what's the point of working? I don't know what their excuse was. But ultimately, they were taking advantage of the kindness 
of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So some poor Christian who's working hard to take care of his family, and they're also trying to be a blessing to other people by taking care of them, all of a sudden, he also had to take care of these guys that were choosing not to do anything. Because apparently these guys were just too spiritual to do any work. You know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And with this laziness now, there was also this problem of being busybodies. I, uh, actually, let's go to verse 11 before I say that. Uh, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So I was asking my kids, what do you guys think a busybody is? The verdict came back unanimously. He said, oh, it's somebody that's hardworking. You know, it's a busybody. <laughs> so uh, I had the, the pleasure of telling them what a busybody was. And they had some pretty look, funny looking faces on, their, uh, on because I told them it's somebody that just is busy doing nothing really. It doesn't mind their own business. or in other people's business all the time. They were kind of like shocked because that's 180 degrees from what they originally thought it was. Their little brains were in overdrive. It was pretty funny to look at their faces. Busybodies are always wanting to know what's going on in everybody else's business. And they love letting others know about all the details of so-and-so and then the gossip. And it doesn't help the cause for Christ. So Paul lets the overseers know that they have the authority of Christ and that they are to command those that are disorderly to quit being busybodies and start working. In other words, your freeloading days and your gossiping days are over. The Bible teaches that as a group of believers, <clears throat> we're all individual parts of one body. And one individual part of that body can cause a lot of pain to the group as a whole. It's like having a toothache or having a broken bone. You know, our, our brother Jim recently had his cast removed. I don't know if you guys noticed he had a cast on. That was your wrist, correct? Yeah. You know, it's a little part of the whole body. It's nothing. To us. But to ask Jim. <laughs> ask Jim, though. And, he'll, and he probably has a list that he can give us of all the things that he couldn't do because that wrist was messed up. All the things that he could do as a whole all of a sudden was hindered because of that wrist. Likewise, when these men were knowingly doing things that were contrary to the word of God, it was taxing on the rest of the church family. So in his second letter, Paul gives them a clear direction on what they need to do. He says, you know what? When someone is rebelling against God's authority like this, you need to just separate yourselves from them. Now, again, remember, this was done with a compassionate heart. This wasn't a shunning. Like you see, uh, you know, some religions will do that. Like they have their man traditions. You don't like our man traditions, then we shun you. That's not what it was. The Bible says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So this is only done after someone is falling into sin. You give them the opportunity to correct their ways. You know, just as a loving parent would correct a child. You don't shun a child. 
Paul had already tried on several occasions. I mean, he was with them. He wrote them. He tried to correct these issues. And apparently, they wanted nothing to do with it. So now, he told the church, hey, it's time to put them out of the fellowship. And this is done in order so that they could actually see the error of their ways and repent and turn back to God. Verse 13, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. These believers were a tightly knit group. I mean, their faith in Jesus created this supernatural love. And they had this tremendous love for one another, and they would do anything for each other. They would sell the shirt off their back if they had to in order to help you. It was a blessing to be there. And those that were choosing not to work had now been expecting them to take care of them. They were taking advantage of their kindness. The church can continue in sin, therefore Paul commanded them, you need to withdraw from them. And this church was such a blessing and so loving that life without the church would eventually cause them to turn back. It should have caused a sorrow within them. And also, if someone is put out of the church, now they are going into Satan's territory. God wasn't protecting them the way he was when they were with the church. From another sense, withdrawing from them, that would actually keep the church spiritually strong and poor. Because over time, if a behavior is not corrected, it would cause others to stumble. And eventually that stumbling, it becomes a compromise, a full-time compromise. And the Holy Spirit does not empower people that are willingly compromising. Ultimately, the church would weaken and they would lose their, their effectiveness. And yet, it's understandable that the church had to be commanded to do this because as Christians, we've been forgiven so much, God's been giving us so much mercy and grace, we just want to share that with people. You want to be an encouragement to believers. You, know, you want to do as much as you can for them. But unfortunately, if sin isn't dealt with in an appropriate and in a timely manner, then we become enablers of that sin. As I was reading Paul's instruction, I was reminded of a story about some, well, 2006 now, uh, so some years ago. Troy and Kim Meter, if you've ever, never heard of them, look them up. They have this horse ranch. They would rescue horses uh, that were abused and neglected, and they would nurture them back to health. Once they would do that, they would uh, team them up with a child, and the horses were used to help herding children, ch- children that were either abused, neglected, or were uh, terminally ill. And these horses knew that these kids were broken, so they were super tender with the kids. Talk about a powerful energy. I mean, tear jerker. Wow. You definitely want to do, that, uh, do a search on the web later on, for James Dobson interview with Kim Meter, passing hope on to others. Okay? Um, you'll hear her story and you'll be glad you did. One of her books, though, Kim spoke of a time when she was looking at these horses out in the field. This one colt was being a nuisance to all the other horses. You know, young horses, right? And just about every horse in that group was getting super annoyed with this, with this colt. So a mommy horse was watching him intently. She got fed up and then she chased him away. And then she came back to the group and she turned her back on that colt. And then the colt tried to return and head up high and he's trotting around and he's still bugging them. She chased him off again. She came back and she turned her back to him. And 
time after time again, they did this. It wasn't because they didn't love him. It's because he needed to grow up. He needed to start behaving. So over and over again, he's trying to come back. Mommy chased him. After many failed attempts, I guess the cult realized that, hey, if this continues, my life will never be the same again because I'm not even part of the group anymore. I'm here by myself. So he came to realize that, hey, my attitude is what's causing this division. It's not the group, it's me. So then he came back, head down, not trotting around. He was just slowly walking back, and they noticed it right away. She says the horses, they gladly took him in at that point. Their backs weren't to him anymore. I thought, wow, what an amazing story. And it came to my mind as I was reading Paul's stuff. I'm like, wow, that's, that's us. That's totally us. You know, God's intention for a rebellious child is for him to return in repentance and faith so that that relationship can be restored. That's the whole point. Verse 16, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So, even with this closing here, Paul is enveloping them with his love. And he lets them know that he's praying for them. And he purposely addresses it to all of them. He doesn't say, you guys that are right. No, he says, all of you. So that's even the guys that were not correct. The whole point of him doing this was to have them return to God so that they can have now that sweet fellowship again that they once had. And even though these Thessalonians, I mean, they were being persecuted from outside of the church, they had their own issues inside the church, even though that was going on, Paul, he knew that God was going to give them the peace throughout, and the joy throughout all these, str- and these struggles that they were going through. You know, no matter what we may be struggling with as individuals, it's a peace of God that passes all understanding. You know, the world offers us like a horizontal peace. It doesn't amount to much. The peace of God, though, that's he, he offers that, that He offers. It's, it's taken our sin away. I mean, He's wiped our slate clean. That's a very different peace. You know, He gives us this clean, unblemished record through the blood of Jesus Christ. And his death, burial, and resurrection is something that we look forward to because that's the promise that we're going to be resurrected on the last day. And don't we just love it when a Christian says, hey, I'm praying for you. You know, Paul says here, I'm praying for you. Because you know, when a Christian says, I'm praying for you, that carries a lot of weight. I mean, the... They are actually entering into the presence of God on your behalf. It means that they care enough about us to actually bring up our needs in their conversation with God. And Paul, he, he, loved, <clears throat> he loved to pray for other people. But you always notice that he asked for prayers too. He loved it when people prayed for him. He also needed them. Those that 
constantly seek the face of God on behalf of uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and overseers are such a blessing to a church. And you know what? A church that prays together in the Spirit is a church that can worship together in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we can't even uh, begin to thank you enough for washing our way, uh, our sins, Lord, with the precious blood of Jesus. Um, I pray that Lord, if anyone here doesn't have that personal relationship with you today, that your Holy Spirit would uh, convince them, but also convict them of their need for you right now. I also ask that you would make, Lord, our love for one another flourish in such a way that it could only be attributed to you. Lord, we ask that this would be done for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.